An expectant hush fell over the room. <laughs> In which case, um, <laughs> good afternoon, everybody. Uh, my name is John Stewart, and I'm chairing this uh, workshop, hefty workshop for postgraduate uh, and early career historians of medicine. Uh, I've got a couple of kind of administrative points to make before we get into the uh, the gist of the afternoon, as it were. Um, and one always has to make these announcements at the beginning of conferences, so just, uh, just bear with me. Uh, there are no fire drills planned for this afternoon, so if the fire alarm goes off, start heading for the door and assemble outside. We've been asked when, <laughs> when going to the toilet, uh, which is along the way up to the left, uh, can you keep quiet in the corridors as there are some exam boards going on at the moment, and of course exam boards are conducted in <coughs> Trappist-like silence. Um, we've got breaks, we've got, sorry, we've got a break for tea, uh, around about 3.20 I think it is. Uh, the drinks will be downstairs in the room uh, where you registered, so if you make your way down there, uh, it's, it's whenever it is, I think it's 3.20, but we'll find out soon enough. Uh, and that's also uh, the location of the drinks reception uh, this evening. This event is being podcast, so, uh, <laughs> or recorded for a podcast. So in the event of you missing any words of wisdom at, uh, uh, in the course of the afternoon, you can revisit them uh, at some future point. Um, which is why we're all walking about with things that look like heart pacemakers and uh, the speakers are. Um, I've got a number of thanks to make. Uh, first of all, to the institutions named in the programme. That is Oxford Brookes University, University of Oxford, Glasgow Caledonian University, uh, the University of Strathclyde, uh, of course, the Society for the Social History of Medicine, uh, and uh, also for funding uh, the Wellcome Trust. Uh, I'd also like to thank uh, the principal organiser uh, of this event, my colleague Dr, uh, Dr. Janet Greenlees, uh, and her helpers, the voluntary helpers, uh, Lindsay Shaw, Katrina Gilmer-Hamilton, Thora Hans and Alex Flucker, uh, and our admin colleagues, uh, Belinda McAllides and Janet Pierotti. And can I thank this afternoon's speakers for, uh, uh, for turning up and hopefully giving us a uh, an entertaining and informative afternoon. Uh, Janet was going to say some, oh, there you uh, something about the um, Society for the Social History of Medicine. Yeah. Uh, can you borrow Matt's recording device before he leaves the room, preferably? Um, I'm Janet Green, the postgraduate coordinator for the Society for the Social History of Medicine, and it's in that capacity I have a couple of announcements to make, um, and as you might imagine, I do a plug for the Society. Um, in organizing this workshop, the Welcome Trust kindly gave us some funds for bursaries, for travel and accommodation, so that you can all attend this with, at no disadvantage to yourself. There's still a little bit of money left, so if anybody is, um, you know, had been paid for their travel expenses themselves, or a, um, in you know, experiencing any financial difficulty in getting here, please have a word with me at one of the breaks and I can explain a bit more about how you could possibly get some of your money back. That said, it's now time for me to do a mini plug for the society. Um, and the society, um, its main activity is it publishes the Social History of Medicine, a journal, one of the top journals in the field. 
Um, and it's a great place to keep up to date, I'm sure you're all familiar with it, with up to date with what's happening in the field of history of medicine. But in terms of membership for students, it's great. It's only £24 a year, <coughs> but you don't just get the journal, you also get the Gazette um, with each issue, which gives you some idea of conferences that are com coming up. Um, conferences have been in the past, activities, grants, um, research collections, all sorts of information that way. And there's also a very fairly active social media for those of you who tweet um, and are on Facebook, which is another good way to learn about forthcoming events, including um, activities specifically designed for postgraduates. And with that, um, just a little plug for the next event for postgraduates. If you've got your diaries out, it's going to be in August 2015, 26th to 27th of August 2015, up in Glasgow, um, Society in conjunction with the Centre for Social History of Health and Healthcare in Glasgow is organising a postgraduate conference. Um, and that's going to take sort of a two or three pronged approach. Um, it's going to be a postgraduate day where you can present your research in a conference style. Um, all the presenters will be postgraduates. So it's an opportunity for you to showcase your work. Um, but in addition, there's going to be a day where I think we've labeled it history in action. Is that right? Yes. Yes, where it's sort of looking at history, ways of doing history, what history can do, everything from becoming a public historian. Um, I'm not quite sure if we're going to, we haven't quite got our list of speakers, do we? But, um, historical fiction. Historical fiction, historical biography. Um, BBC stuff. BBC, yeah. <laughs> um, as you can tell, this is all in development. And then there'll also be um, a session organized by the Centre for Oral History, the Scottish Centre for Oral History, um, a, a workshop for doing oral history and medical histories. Um, so if you're interested in that, that would be something in addition to add on. So that's a date to keep for your diary. More will be advertised as we get more organized over the next few months. Um, and with that, just bearing in mind, we, as a society, we are very interested in running events and organizations for those either postgraduates or early career um, to help you out. So if you have any suggestions, um, you know, please do let us know for events that you would like. And if you could, there are feedback forms in the conference packs, um, we'd be grateful for any feedback you have about this one so that we can organize things to benefit you in the future. And so with that, I can hand you back to John Stewart. Okay, thank you very much. Do you want to just swap the... Um, yeah, no. Okay, the way the rest of the afternoon is going to run is that uh, the various speakers will come up and give a talk for uh, around 15 minutes. Uh, there will probably be space for any brief questions after each session, but uh, the main kind of panel session is going to be right at the end uh, of the afternoon when we'll get all the speakers up front and you can uh, fire questions at them. Uh, I'm sure the speakers will be only too happy to be approached in the tea break or at the drinks reception this evening as well, so it is actually quite a good opportunity to uh, get to put both general and particular questions to uh, people, uh, people in the field. Okay, so our first session, which runs up until 2.20, uh, is early career experiences uh, in the history of medicine. And our first speaker uh, is Dr. Uh, Dr. Matt Smith, who joined the University of Strathclyde in 2011, uh, where he's now senior lecturer in history, an active member of the Centre for the Social History of Health and Healthcare. He's on the point of embarking uh, on an AHRC-funded project on social psychiatry in the United States. Uh, in 19, uh, sorry, 2012, 
He was named as an HRC BBC New Generation Thinker, and within the last few weeks, he's been elected to the Royal Society of Edinburgh's Young Academy. So, and indeed, more than that, uh, he's also a book reviews editor for the journal uh, History of Psychiatry. So, Matt, who's going to talk on the uh, topic of coming up with a master plan for your academic career and knowing when to abandon it. I assume you mean the master plan and not the academic career. No. Ah, right. <laughs> That's going to be a short session. <laughs> All right, so, oops, this is all out of order. Oh, that's fine. Okay, so, here we go. Well, I think in some ways, in a few ways, I might be the perfect person to give this talk. And that's because I actually had a life, a career before coming into uh, academics, and that was as a careers advisor. I did this at a few places, including this place, and that place. <laughs> the uh, YMCA, it used to be called the Enterprise Center. Now it's the Bill Reese YMCA in Edmonton, Alberta. And basically what my job was there was helping people figure out what the hell they were going to do with the rest of their lives. So as, as I hope some of you would agree, a fairly important job. And one of the things that I figured out there, and if, if you look closely, you might get an idea of some of our clientele, not always the easiest people to work with, um, but that didn't really matter. And one of the things that I figured out early on is that planning was essential to any uh, academic career. And planning involved more than just looking, watching CSI on TV and deciding you wanted to be a medical lab technologist. Because actually what most medical lab technologists do is look at vials of semen day in, day out, eight, eight hours of day, checking for a sperm count. Not quite as, a, as a romantic as Silent Witness, perhaps. Unless, well, you have a different version of romance than I do. So the first question that I would ask <laughs> um, would be, is this the career for you? Do you like to research? Do you like to write? Do you like to engage with the public? Do you like to do administration? Uh, do you like to teach? Did I say that one last? That, that, shouldn't, that shouldn't have been on purpose. I think that was just me getting carried away. And so do you, do you like doing those things? And are you good at them? If you think the answer is yes to both those questions, then let's proceed. So for me, I worked here for two years. It was a great job, but towards the end, partly because of some management issues and partly because when you're working as a careers advisor, you start to think, what the hell am I going to do with myself? <laughs> I decided to make some other plans. And so I, I just went across the river to the University of Alberta and did a, and did a master's degree in history. Now, interestingly, I applied at the same time my wife is applying. We both applied to four places. She got into three. I got into two. And the only other one I got into was in uh, Dalhousie in Halifax, where I was going to be studying breakdowns in American intelligence starting in September 2001. So <laughs> my life could have been very different if Michelle had been accepted at Dalhousie. <laughs> I think we probably would have left. 
Um, so I, I finished my MA and I, I did a research-based MA, which I think is actually a very good idea. So it was two full years and ended up doing a, a long thesis as part of it. But I didn't make any plans whatsoever. I was balancing three jobs and, you know, by the time I was done, I just got another job like the one I was doing before. So, in some ways, this wasn't such a bad thing because it gave me some time to think about whether I wanted to actually pursue an academic career or not. And it gave me some time to actually work at it. So I, I, I worked at my next job for three years. And then I decided, yes, I do want to go on and do a PhD. And here's where I went. Beautiful Exeter. Now, I took a lot of time to figure this out. So I figured out during my MA that I wanted to study the history of hyperactivity. And I looked around for different places to, to do that. And <laughs> my two, uh, <laughs> I ended up at Exeter, but my second choice was to work with Hillary <laughs> at, at Warwick. And if I'm 100% complete, there's two reasons why I didn't go there. One was that the project involved allergy, and Mark Jackson knows quite a bit about allergy. I'm sure Hillary does as well. But that combination of mental health and allergy was important. The other thing is that Warwick is flat and Devon is hilly. And as a couple slides down the road, you'll see that was very important because I really didn't think of this as something I was going to do for the rest of my life. I thought of it as a three-year jolly, basically, that the Wellcome Trust paid for. <laughs> So, <laughs> and the reason I came to the UK was partly because there really weren't any prospects in Canada. I didn't, sorry if there's any Americans in the house, but I didn't really want to go down to the States. Um, and I, I, I just really wanted to live somewhere really foreign and exotic, like Exeter. <laughs> <laughs> So beforehand, I, I flew out for a conference, which, again, the Welcome Trust <laughs> generously paid for. I made sure that, you know, that this wonderful Mark Jackson guy who was so pleasant in the emails wasn't actually a you-know-what you know in person as a certain Canadian historian <laughs> of I won't tell you what was. Uh, and so I spent the summer getting my research figured out, getting a visa, making the plan over. Uh, making, making plans to come over. And so what did I do during my PhD? Well, here's a selection. <laughs> so we'll start, start in the middle. I did a lot of traveling, some research-based, some not. That wasn't funded by the trust. I did an awful lot of cycling on Dartmoor. I volunteered with the Exeter uh, National Trust. That's, that's uh, Susan, she was my boss. I was the only person in the, in the 25 years that she's been uh, managing that particular group that she had to take to A&E, which is, I think, a nice, I could still have the scar on my thumb. I almost chopped my thumb off with a hatchet. I sung in a world music choir. I had fun <laughs> uh, with great friends like Claude, who, who is an American, so I don't have anything against Americans, so don't, don't get me wrong. Um, and I just had an absolute blast. I also got published. I got on the radio a few times. I won a couple essay prizes. And I managed to finish in under three years. Now, I think there's a connection between all this and what I was, so my having a good time and me you know, accomplishing what I did academically. Because when I worked, I worked. When I played, I played. 
and there was no connection between the two. And this is even what the wife who is also in academics, or also in academia. Having a brilliant supervisor helps, of course. Knowing what you're doing, you know, having a good plan really helped. Doing that two-year master's degree as opposed to a one-year degree was very, very helpful. So, you know, it's, I think that's something that many students overlook in their rush to get into a PhD program. And, you know, I mean, I'm a, I've always found writing fairly easily. I've, I've, I'm, I'm, in terms of my academic or methodological background, I'm a bit of a relativist. I have a background in science studies, so I don't believe that there's any such thing as truth. So that helps you in making decisions. Because <laughs> there's no right decision. You just barge ahead, and if it works, great. If not, well, you try again. But despite all this, I, know, I knew that the post-PhD uh, experience was going to be difficult. And, well, the main reason for that was the you-know-whatting you banks. Because as many of you might have known, many, uh, not only the Wellcome Trust, but universities and everyone lost billions and trillions of, of pounds and dollars during the crash. So what did I do? Well, I did a lot of applications. And this, isn't a, this is not an exhaustive list. I'm not going to go through, you, through them. You can just have a, a, have a look. Uh, but basically, I applied for absolutely everything I could possibly imagine. Now, part of my urgency was a visa situation. I had to get my ass in gear in order to stay in the country. That's still an issue for me, actually. Uh, so I'd have to leave if I didn't find something. And basically, a one month before my visa ran out, there was only one iron left in the fire, and that was a Welcome Trust Fellowship. Now, thanks to the credit crunch, I had to wait a little bit longer than most people to find out the result, because they weren't sure how much money they were going to have. So, whereas people, I got a negative answer, and then a bit of a clause saying, well, you might get a positive answer in three months. So that was a, that was a fun three months, let me tell you. And I, I eventually did find out. Uh, but, but while I was doing that, I was making plans for basically abandoning academia. I started doing career planning workshops at Exeter. Um, I'm trying to think. No, I don't think. It, no one here did one, but some Exeter people did them, and they've all got jobs. So there you go. <laughs> um, and basically figuring out what I was going to do, abandoning the academic ship, which in many ways I was completely prepared to do. Because like I said, this was going to be three years of fun, something I wouldn't have the opportunity to do anywhere else. And you know, I wasn't going to look back and have a whole bunch of regrets. But. <laughs> On a bus to Budley Salterton with one of my oldest friends, Mark Jackson gave me a call, and lo and behold, I got the fellowship. So I was in Exeter for another three years. Well, that, or, or that's what I thought. So sometimes, you know, do all this planning, and it, it's not going to come up to much. And then other times, you can, uh, you know, the plans work out. So I think it's important. And then other times, you just have to go at things that, sort of appear uh, out of the blue. And I'll, I'll, this is the story of how I got my first book, which is, as you can tell, a bit convoluted. So I, I uh, sent in an uh, essay for an essay prize, the Cadogan Prize, which was funded by the, oh god, the British Society for Child, oh, <laughs> 
Ah, child health, child and infant health. I can't even remember the name of the damn thing. Anyways, they're wonderful, wonderful people. I was the only... <laughs> they are. I just can't remember the acronym. It's too long. Um, they're wonderful, wonderful people, but I was the only person that wrote in an essay that was the right length. So guess who they gave it to? <laughs> so they took me over and, and my wife over to Dublin, where we had this fabulous time. And I got to give my paper at the Royal College of uh, Surgeons of Ireland. There, I met one of my best mates, Angus Ferguson, who's going to be buzzing around in the next couple days. Angus got me to the Lake District for a Rank Prize Fund symposium on child feeding and in infant feeding and child nutrition. I think I got that one right. So there, I met Rima Apple, who some of you may know, who edits the critical issues in, see, this is why I struggle, there's so many bloody names. Critical issues in health and medicine series with Rutgers, and then I got the, the book. Now, even the picture of the book is you know, how circumstance can, can be helpful. I have a friend who I met at Exeter, who's a Canadian guy, who's a great photographer. And I was figuring that Rutgers didn't want, wasn't going to pay for a cover, so I had to figure out what the hell I'm going to do. So I'm, I'm with Tim in London, and we, we bought these, these uh, jelly beans. And we thought, what are we going to We're throwing them up in the air, he's taking pictures. So that we're trying to figure out something you know, photographic to do with these jelly beans. And then we see this kid playing with his parents. And I just got the idea of, you know, well, that. Get them to sign a very <laughs> ad hoc <laughs> disclosure <laughs> form, you know, and th there's the cover of the book. So, you know, sometimes I think taking risks and just saying what the hell can really, really do a lot. My, my second book was similar. I went to a, um, a Jeremy Black, who's a historian at Exeter, had a book launch at the same time I was in London doing this. I went to it and got talking to the people at Reaction. They liked the project, and five page, pages of hasty proposal later, I had a contract for a book with them. So, you know, <coughs> try different things, talk to people, and, and things can happen. And interesting, Jeremy Black thought the best plan for me was to go get a job at a private school teaching history. So, hope Jeremy hears this. <laughs> Now, interesting, I chose Reaction partly because they were a slightly more, um, uh, less academic series or, or a publisher, and I thought, I still wasn't confident I was going to get a permanent job, so I thought, well, I'll write a, a book that is edging towards more um, uh, public history, and that might help. And, you know, at least the, the good thing about that is that they did, they did make some effort to try to sell the books, which other publishers don't always do. Now, while at Exeter, I was trying to line up a university award because this is a very, with the Wellcome Trust, a very cost-effective way of universities to take on permanent staff. When this happened, there you go. So um, things became a bit more urgent. <laughs> it's one thing swanning around in a foreign country you know, with, a, uh, with a supportive wife. It's another thing when you have a win on your hands. And so I still, I, and because of the previous experience with the Wellcome Trust, I, you know, I wasn't 100% convinced that the university award was, was going to fly, so I kept applying for jobs. And so I ended up going from here to here. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> well, that is Glasgow, but this is where I live. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> and Janet, actually. <laughs> it doesn't look like that this time here, I, I, let me assure you. Um, anyways, <laughs> yeah. So I came up to Strathclyde and, you know, got the permanent job and, you know, the Holy Grail, the permanent job, you know, re re rejoicing in hallelujah again. But, you know, even at that, I don't think I or people, if, you know, when you get a permanent job, you can't just stand still and, well, great, let's, let's uh, start to uh, become complacent. Got to think about promotions, got to think about funding because your universities are going to pressure you to uh, access funding even if you don't really need funding to do your research. Did I say that out loud? <laughs> um, you didn't hear that, Dan, did you? <laughs> um, I don't have to worry about you for two years, so. Um, and, you know, you, you don't, I, some academics do become complacent. I just wonder why, because if, you know, if you're becoming complacent, then you probably shouldn't be doing what you're doing. Anyhow, so in the years, in the four years since I got my job, I've continued to follow the same advice that I gave myself going in. And so, um, that is partly, you know, planning for things. For example, I put a lot of effort into a Wellcome Trust uh, Investigator Award application, which followed an unsuccessful Leverhulme application. The Wellcome Trust one was unsuccessful, and then eventually I got the HRC thing for the same same proposal. So, you know, you can do a lot of planning and put a lot of time in and, and it takes a long time to get places. And then other times you just do something on a lark, like this BBC thing, and you get a whole bunch of exposure for doing absolutely nothing. So, you know, it's, it's a balance between taking punts and really planning things out, I think. So, at this stage, where do I go next? Well, Right now, I'm director of research at Strathclyde. I've got a third book coming out next year. You know, so two-year fellowship coming up for a fourth. So things are looking pretty good. But still, you know, it's no no reason to become complacent um, for me or for anybody else. I don't think at any stage of their career. So, what what are my tips? My top tips? Well, take time to plan. That's probably the most important thing. Talk to people. You know, really. Flesh out your plans. Make sure you know what you're doing. Don't, but don't be blinkered. You don't want to just, you know, put the blinkers on and go full steam ahead and never look at, oh, this is an opportunity over here, this is an opportunity over there. It might not go to that plan, but it still might take you somewhere interesting. Make many friends. Try not to make many enemies. Um, I hope I follow that as much as I can, but you know, it's. Most people in this area are very nice and helpful. There are some people in this room who are extremely nice and helpful. You know, talk to them, they will help you out. Try to be efficient. I don't work hard. I really don't work hard. I work efficiently. If people say, oh, I work so hard and I get nothing done, well, I don't care. If, if I'm on a hiring panel, if there's a job talk and someone says I work hard, I say, well, who cares if you work hard? What do you get done? You know, that's being efficient, that's knowing. And if, you, and if you're not good at the writing, work at the writing. If you're not good at figuring out what archives to go to, work at that. These are all skills you can learn. You know, I don't have a great memory, <laughs> as, as, as you found out with all these titles. 
Um, I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer, but I have a few skills and I can, you know, I work on them and that's how I've got where I am. But the other reason is that so you can have a life. You know, that's essential. It really is. There's so many academics who just head down, ass up, and they're miserable as something that rhymes with luck. So, <laughs> not luck and luck. <laughs> so work, work, on, work on the skills that help you as a historian, writing, teaching, public engagement, and even administration. So as, as director of research right now, I get to go back and be a careers advisor. My job essentially is to help my colleagues do better at their careers, and I love it. It's one of my favorite aspects of my job right now, is helping my colleagues get where they want to go. But, and most importantly, really make sure that this is for you. My wife, um, a band, well, she left in the third year of a PhD at the University of Alberta in English to come over uh, to Exeter with me. And basically, you know, she had everything going for me that I did. Ultimately, just she decided, you know what, this isn't for me. And I think that's very courageous. Uh, to do something like that. So make sure that this is for you. Okay, that's it. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Matt. And can you hand over the microphone to Erica while I uh, introduce her? Okay, so next speaker is Dr. Erica Charters, uh, who joined the University of Oxford in 2009 as an Associate Professor in the History of Medicine uh, and of course she's one of the core members of the Welcome Unit uh, for the History of Medicine in Oxford which is just around the corner. Erica works on war in medicine and her monograph on the well-being of the British Armed Forces uh, during the Seven Years War uh, will be out later this year, is that right? Later this year? Good. She's also held various fellowships including, again I think I'm right in saying this, last year a Lever Humanity Research Fellowship. And like Matt before her, uh, she's a member of the Executive Committee of the Society for the Social History of Medicine. And she's going to talk to us this afternoon on options and opportunities after the PhD. Erica. Thank you. Erica. Thank you. And uh, like Matt, I'm Canadian, but you don't have to be Canadian to be an early career historian <laughs> of medicine. <laughs> it's just by accident. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about this very tough time, because I won't lie to you, I think it is a very tough time, A, when you're finishing up the doctorate, and B, when you're trying to get a permanent job. It's not a very pleasant period in life, but I think it can actually be quite uh, useful, and uh, it can really teach you all sorts of great things. Um, so for my background, I should say that uh, I did my doctorate here at Oxford, and I hadn't done history really in my previous degree, so I was somewhat lost when I came here, and I needed to kind of prep on reading. So one of the things I did was a lot of teaching. So I taught British history here at Oxford, and I also taught history of medicine at Oxford Brookes, which was really great, because at Brookes, I could do lectures and run seminars and design courses and get the kind of teaching experience that you don't necessarily get at Oxford. And just to second what Matt said about having outside activities, I found it was very useful when I was a doctoral student to have things that were completely unrelated to doing history. I think it keeps you sane, um, it kind of uh, makes clear what kind of priorities you have going on at the time. So when I finished my doctorate, I faced a situation that I think is very similar to many people, which is I had no job. Um, for a few months, I was a research assistant for a few days a week for a supervisor, kind of 
for a little bit of money and for morale. And then I got a four months teaching replacement position at the University of Newcastle. And there I was teaching British history. And so that was a bit odd because what happened is they paid for my travel expenses to go up two days a week. So I take the train up in the morning, arrive in, give a lecture, teach a seminar, go to bed, get up in the morning, teach another seminar, give another lecture, talk to some students, and then come back down to Oxford. So it was a bit of an unusual experience. And I didn't really get a sense of what it meant to be part of a department. After that, I got a two-year post, uh, again, a teaching replacement post at the University of Liverpool, teaching British history and imperial history. And there, I was much more part of the department. So there, I sat on committees. I helped with admissions. I did open days. And I really got a sense of what it might be to be an academic. As well as the teaching, I had been hired as a research manager for a research center. So it was an 18th century interdisciplinary center. And it had just started, so I was kind of, I was supposed to help get it off the ground, which meant that I had to do all sorts of things which I had no idea about. So I had to design a website, which I had knew nothing about. I had to design posters. I had to help get a master's course off the ground. I helped to run workshops and seminars and conferences. Um, the center wanted me to try to encourage all the academics in the university from whatever department to come to their seminars and workshops. So they asked me to go and talk to every academic who had any kind of interest in the 18th century and try to somehow convince them to show up. And I don't know if you can imagine how scary it is. I'm uh, not the most outgoing person naturally, but to go and knock on people's doors and be like, hi, you work on Kant, you're a philosopher. Let me tell you about the 18th century and what we can offer you. <laughs> so <laughs> this, those few years, and of course, at the same time, right, you're trying to publish an article or two, you're trying to get a book contract, you're trying to write job applications. Those two years were utterly terrifying and exhausting. But they were also really amazing experience, and it gave me a really good sense of what being an academic might involve. So what I learned during this time, kind of to echo some of Matt's points, I learned how to be efficient and manage my time. I mean, as a doctoral student, I thought I was pretty efficient. You know, I answered my emails, I was doing all this teaching. When I started the job at Liverpool, and I was getting like 80 emails a day that I had to answer, and all this other administration stuff, I freaked out. And so I think it was in my second week, um, I was like, I can't do this. I was totally overwhelmed. And luckily, my brother was visiting. And my brother is a businessman. I don't really know what businessmen do, so I don't know what my brother does. <laughs> but he has an MBA, and he manages his companies. And he has things like these books called Seven Habits for Highly Effective People on his bookshelf, which I was always like, what are those? Those are clearly a scam. I don't need those. I'm efficient. I'm an intellectual. So <laughs> when I was freaking out, he said to me, look, you might not want this advice, but try reading some of these books. And I did, and they were great. They described exactly the kind of situation I found myself in, where I was totally overwhelmed, and how to deal with it. So those are actually very useful. I no longer look down on them. Um, and I think, a bit like Matt, this is really important because you don't become less busy as your career progresses, you become more busy. And I think it's very important to manage your time, also because you want to have a life outside of what you're doing. Um, during those early years, I basically was in the position where I had what was a stepson, so I had to try to keep my weekends and my mornings free. And so I really needed to focus on getting stuff done during those working hours. So I think one of the important things to think about, what you're trying to manage is um, what I would call kind of the holy trinity of the academic world, right? So this is um, administration, teaching, and research. And your administration and your teaching tend to start to 
uh, take up all of your time. So you need to be efficient to manage your, those two activities so that you have time for your research because you really have to work hard to protect your research. And I think that's really important because in the early stages of your career, it's crucial, right? Research is not a luxury. You need to be doing research. And later in your career, I think you're going to be very unhappy if you find that you don't have the time to do your research. So a few things that I found very useful. I had um, some short-term fellowships during these years, so the Huntington, the Clements, so kind of rich American libraries, basically. Um, Canadians are such turncoats. But um, <laughs> they give fellowships where you can go and you can work in the archives, and it gives you a kind of month where you can just research and think, which is a great morale booster. They also give you money. So if you don't know what else is going on, you can just apply for all of these and have these and use them when you can. Um, the other thing I think is really important is to have a mentor or have many mentors, as Matt was saying. And this is really just a kind of cheesy word for someone who, where you admire their career and you can ask them for advice and look to see what strategies they have for things like protecting their research time or how to deal with <coughs> teaching problems or anything like that. They're really, really useful. Also, I think it's really important to act like the post that you want or act like the post that you're in. I think um, the, the transformation from being a student into being a faculty is very sudden. And I think in your first post, you're kind of feeling like you're a fraud because clearly you don't know really what you're doing. But I think once you start acting like you know what you're doing, it's surprising how everyone believes you. And I think that also <laughs> helps for <laughs> I shouldn't have said that now, right? But, um, also for thinking about future posts that you want. You know, act like the kind of posts that you do want because that is also then how people will take you seriously for those posts. And most importantly, I found what was really important in my case was to get experience beyond what I knew. So to go beyond your comfort zone. So when I got the post at Liverpool, People at Oxford felt really sorry for me because, of course, the thing that you're supposed to do after you get your doctorate at Oxford is get a postdoc at Oxford, you know, get a JRF and stay here, or maybe get a postdoc at Cambridge. But you're certainly not supposed to get a teaching job in the North. And so <laughs> it was this kind of like, oh, poor Erica. And so I think this is where you're presented with this opportunity that, on the one hand, you can stay in your department and continue to simply extend the experience that you already have as a student, or you could go someplace new. And I would say if you go someplace new, move to that city, live by the department, make sure you go in often and take part in as much as you can, because then you really will add to your experience as opposed to kind of extending what you, the life that you already had as a student. So after Liverpool, I got my first permanent post at the University of Bath Spa um, in European history. And so this meant that by the time I was interviewed for the post at Oxford, although it was only a few years since I had finished the doctorate, I had already taught in five different British universities, and I had a really wide experience of different kinds of departments and different kinds of administration, and I had also built up all of these networks of contacts um, and different types of researchers that I knew. And so I think that worked very well to my advantage. So even though I was junior, I had experience. So kind of more broadly, I was thinking about how you navigate these difficult years. And one thing I think is really useful to start thinking about is your priorities. Um, just think really hard about what is important to you, right? Do you want a house more than you want a job, for example? Do you want to live with your partner? Can you do long distance? And think about what's really important for your career. If you want to be an academic, what is it about being an academic that you really want to do? And I think it's important to know this because 
you're always making decisions during these early years, but very often you don't realize it until in retrospect when you kind of look back and you see which pathway you chose. Because this is a very competitive uh, career plan, right? It's like being an artist or a musician, there's just not enough positions for everyone who's good. So if you don't want to move to Timbuktu for the job, but candidate B wants to move to Timbuktu for the job, candidate B is going to get it. So you just want to be clear that you're making that decision when you say, no, I'm not willing to move. And I would also say, you know, there's no wrong decisions here, but just be clear on the decisions. And especially if you're thinking about families or partners, have this conversation early because it's too late to have the conversation when you have the job offer, right? You need to talk about it before. Um, I know that uh, there's some discussion about having kind of female-specific advice, so I do have a few points, though to be honest, I think it's probably for both genders. Um, I think thinking about these priorities is often very pertinent for women. I have a friend who is in a history department that's very male-dominated, and he was saying how they've been trying for years to hire female candidates. They really want female historians. But when the applications come in, the female historians, their CVs are just slightly less impressive than the male, so they can't shortlist them. And his theory for this, because he doesn't think that there's anything wrong with female historians, but his theory is that women tend to put themselves in positions where, you know, they're the ones who commute in the relationship. They do a few extra hours of childcare or whatever that is. And so it translates into a few, a, you know, one or two fewer articles in the long term. So again, thinking about what decisions you make, I think are very important. Another bit of useful advice I got was, um, think about who pours the tea. So the point of this, and this can work even I think when you're a junior, is you'll find yourself very often in the situation where there's you and a bunch of academics standing around in a room and there's some tea and coffee in the table and no one's poured it yet. And so don't necessarily be the one who rushes forward to pour it. And I think especially for women, you're kind of brought up to be the hostess, but if you're always the one who pours the tea, then you're not necessarily the one who's offering the ideas. So you wanna think about what role you're putting yourself in. And in the same way where people advise me, don't always be the one who deals with the emotional problems of students. Because again, women are very mm -hmm. good at dealing with those problems, but you can get yourself pigeonholed into the faculty person who deals with problem students and not the faculty person who writes books. So again, just thinking about these choices that you're making. I think more broadly, it's also just thinking about what type of academic you are. Um, I had initially worked for an academic who I would say is kind of pushy. Um, and so I thought maybe to be a successful academic, you have to be very aggressive. And I actually think that's not true. So you just have to figure out what your strengths are. And for me, for example, I find building up these networks and working with other people are things which I quite like. And especially for women, very often they talk about collaboration being um, much more natural. So again, think about what strategies you want and what you find very useful. Um, I just want to end by talking about something which isn't on here, uh, though Matt raised it too, which is about non-academic jobs. Because when I was thinking about um, my career progression, I was struck by how very few of the people who I did a doctorate with are in academic jobs. Mm -hmm. um, and in fact, the two most brilliant and accomplished of my doctoral peers left academia very soon after they finished their PhD. 
So one of my friends left after he published two major articles. He left, he got a one-year teaching job, and then he was applying for jobs, and then he just left. And he said to me, and I thought it was pretty insightful, though I was kind of shocked at the time. He was like, this is a scam. He said, look, you know, we're overworked, we're underpaid, we're scrabbling around desperate for like five hours of teaching a week or something like this. And he was like, I don't understand what it's for. Because his point was that he could get the intellectual stimulation in other parts of his life or in his job or reading books on the side. And then he could get a secure job, a well-paid job somewhere else quite easily. And he felt that a lot of people don't leave academia because they're kind of too ashamed to admit to their parents or to their friends that they're no longer an academic or an intellectual, whatever that might be. And so he's very happy in his non-academic job now and really does you know, still do history in his own way. My other friend turned down a fully funded um, postdoc and what he said was that, look, all the way through, he won scholarships, he had full funding, he got these top marks, but he never once stopped and asked himself if this is what he wanted to do. And of course, everyone expected that he wanted to do it because it's so competitive, if you get a fully funded postdoc, why would you turn it down? So just thinking about, do you really want to do this? And you don't have to do this. And I think the stats at the moment, out of Ivy League schools in the States are that only 50% of PhD grads in the humanities end up in tenure-track jobs. And my guess is the stats are higher here in the UK, so I'm guessing 60%, maybe 65% with PhDs are not going into the academy. So I do think we want to maybe rethink how we see a PhD, which is that it's not training to be an academic, it's training for a variety of careers. Um, and I think often because we don't have those examples surrounding us, right, we're in a university, we don't see those 65% and what they end up doing, then we often don't think about those other possibilities. So I do think that there's all these other possibilities available to you, and so in that sense, hopefully those years after the PhD can be somewhat more exciting than just terrible and stressful.